Jesus has just called the 12 disciples unto himself, and now he gives them a teaching. This teaching is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's also recorded for us in Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus brought them up to a mountain and shared this message with them. And it's Christ's blessings. It's also been referred to as the Beatitudes, Jesus welcoming into an attitude of Christian living. It's really the Christ attitudes, the Beatitudes versus the me attitudes. Christ's instruction to us is completely different than the way our flesh would tend to operate, the way this world system would operate. The word blessed literally means, oh, how happy. God is calling us into an abundant life. Jesus came to provide an abundant life as we walk in these Beatitudes. At the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's quite a standard, isn't it? One of the reasons for the Sermon on the Mount is to drive us to Jesus to see our need for salvation that we can't save ourselves apart from the finished work of Christ. Also, another reason for this teaching is for it to be lived out. Jesus said that you're like a man building his house upon the rock when you hear my sayings and do them. Jesus wants us to do them, but it drives us to Jesus where we need his help in order to live these things out. There's no way we can live out the Sermon on the Mount, apart from Christ's help and strength. So it drives us to Christ for salvation and also drives us to Christ for Christian living. Verse 20, then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, it's always important to know who are the original hearers or receivers of the teaching. And it's the disciples, it's the 12, it's those that have been called by Jesus and they're willing to follow Jesus. Here's the first blessed. Blessed Are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. If you're taking notes, write, blessing of poverty. Blessing of poverty. Those two concepts don't seem to go together in our mindset. That there would be a blessing that comes from poverty. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So Jesus isn't necessarily making an economic statement, but he's speaking of our heart condition. Do we have a humble, poor spirit? The Beatitudes, the blessings of Christ, walking in these things, the door that opens it for us is humility, is a poor spirit. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It literally means to be bankrupt in spirit, where we understand that before a holy God, There's nothing that we can do to stand before him. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We're bankrupt but before the Lord. And it's one thing to to say that. It's another thing to know that, to live that. Because we're saved in that place of humility. But we also want to continue to walk in being poor in spirit. It's not that we check that at the door. Being poor in spirit is the opposite of being proud in in spirit. Would you say that uh, is a characteristic of your heart and your life, that that you're poor in spirit, that you know who God is and you know who you are and, and you need his grace every day in your life. And God says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's hard to get saved if you don't realize you're a sinner. It's hard to go to the great physician if you don't realize that you're sick. But that poor in spirit 
coming broken before the Lord, trusting and relying upon the finished work of Christ. It's the blessing of, of poverty. Verse 21, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessing of hunger. First, the blessing of poverty, and number two, the blessing of hunger. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. In Matthew 5, Jesus put it this way, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. (laughs) Where we get to that place where we're like, nothing other than Jesus will do. Nothing other than Jesus will last. He's the bread of life. He's my pursuit. He's who I'm hungry for. To describe the state of your soul, what would you say you're, you're hungry for tonight? Are you hungry for success, accomplishment, companionship, security, ease? What is it in our lives that we're saying, I'm really hungry for this? Notoriety? Or could we say, I'm hungry for righteousness. I'm thirsty for righteousness. It's an amazing statement about Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. It says that he was anointed with gladness above all of his fellows, meaning that Jesus was happier than anybody else who walked the face of the planet because he hated wickedness and he loved righteousness. Jesus loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. Are we hungry for righteousness? Are we seeking after righteousness? Then there's this promise that will be filled. I think it goes hand in hand. Once we're poor in spirit, then we start to hunger the things of God. But before we're poor in spirit, usually there's not a spiritual hunger that's there. Solomon really lived a life where he tried to be filled apart from his relationship with God. He filled it with everything that this world had to offer, and he had access to it. He had access to lots of women, sexual sin. He had access to riches and wealth and amazing palaces and gardens. He had wisdom where people would flock just to hear him share, hear hear him speak. But he continues to share with us that it's vanity, it's empty, it, it didn't fill, it, it didn't satisfy. At the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he said, this is the conclusion of the whole matter, to fear God and to keep his commands. <laughs> All comes back to a relationship with God, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, then will be feel, filled. And that's the blessing of hunger. When we hunger after righteousness, there's the promise that we're gonna be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This is the blessing of comfort. This is an attitude in which Christ calls us into to weep and to sorrow. In Matthew 5, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As we think of, well, what are we mourning about? What are we weeping about? We're weeping over our sin. We're weeping over the sin of others. It's that spiritual brokenness before God. And when we're in a place of being poor in spirit and it allows sorrow in our lives, this makes us uncomfortable to some degree. I think that this probably would not go over very well in a lot of churches in America today. There's a Christianity that's being shared and preached that, oh man, Christ just wants you to be happy from a worldly perspective. And God wants us to have abundant life But it it comes with us being poor in spirit. It comes 
from us being in that place of, of mourning over our sin. And as we do, then there is laughter. Then there is joy that comes from meeting with the Lord. Sorrow gives us the opportunity to go deeper into God's comfort. It gives us the opportunity to go deeper in knowing God is our Father. So when you're thinking about the abundant life, this, this happiness from Christ's perspective that he calls us into, is realize there's a blessing in sorrow. Because the sorrow allows us to experience the Lord's comfort. The next blessing is the blessing of rejection. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Remember, this is directed towards the disciples, and the disciples are going to live this out. We see that in the book of Acts. They're rejected, they're hated, they're persecuted, they're, they're martyred, they're killed because of Jesus' sake. And the key to this is for the Son of Man's sake. Sometimes people come against us for our own stupidity's sake. Amen? Right? It's like, man, I deserve that. I blew it. This really has nothing to do with Christ. This has everything to do with my own sin, my own stupidity. This is speaking of those times when we follow after Christ, where we are walking in his footsteps, and then there's those that come against us. And sometimes this is a shock to our system when we start living out these attributes of Christ, where we're poor in spirit, we're hungering and thirst after righteousness, we're, we're mourning. Well, then we would think that there wouldn't be a lot of opposition, we wouldn't think that people would, would come against us. Who, who would want to come against somebody who is poor in spirit? Well, the world crucified Christ, and the world will come against Christ's likeness. And if you experience persecution for the name of Christ, then what's your response to be? To rejoice. I mean, this is quite a statement, like leap for joy. How many times in your life have you just leaped for joy? Remember those Toyota commercials? Are you old enough to remember those? You know, they're just jumping for, for joy, right? And so if you have those that come against you because you're a Christian, because you're, you're following Christ, then we're to rejoice. It takes faith to do that. And the disciples responded in rejoicing in the book of Acts when they were persecuted for the name of Christ. There's this promise of great reward in heaven. That's a good place for your reward to be. Can't be affected by inflation can't be impacted by the stock market going in the tanks that heavenly economy just continues to go up and up and up and the prophets were rejected as well in verse 24 but woe to you who are rich for you've received your consolation there is a warning about in scripture about trusting in riches it's not that money in and of itself is evil. The Bible's often misquoted. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. But we are warned with riches to not trust in them. Paul wrote to Timothy and he says, don't trust in uncertain riches. In Matthew 19 verse 24, it says, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God. Not impossible, but difficult. Nothing's impossible for the Lord. But it's easy to depend upon riches instead of trusting in God. James chapter 1 gives a, a warning as well. 
with riches. Let the lowly brother glory in exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he passes away. For no sooner has the sun risen with burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. Verse 25, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn. This is getting filled up on everything that the world has to offer. The entertainment, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. And Christ warns here, if you have everything that you need, be careful. Because again, it can be easy to miss God. It can be easy to not depend upon the Lord. In Deuteronomy 8, there's this warning to the children of Israel when they get to the promised land. It says, when you've eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by keeping his commands, his judgments, and his statutes, which I've commanded you today. Oftentimes, trial does lead us deeper into the Lord. But hopefully, blessing does as well. When God blesses you and he provides for your needs, when you're full and you're able to pay your utility bill and pay your rent and your mortgage and be a blessing to others, hopefully those blessings are causing us not to depend upon ourselves, but to be thankful to the Lord. So there's this warning when we're comfortable. Verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Everybody loved the false prophets. Everybody loved the false prophets who made them comfortable and told them lies. So if everyone's your fan, then we're probably not following Jesus because the truth is offensive. Not that we're trying to be offensive. We want to speak the truth in love. But Jesus warns if everybody's speaking well of you. This next section, it's a large section. It's the blessing of mercy. It's the blessing of giving mercy to others. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Man, this is contrary to my liking. This is contrary to my flesh. This is an attitude in which Jesus is calling us into. He says, I want you to love your enemies. Love those who are coming against you. And the disciples would have enemies. The Roman Empire. The scribes. The Pharisees. The religious community that would persecute the disciples. A real test of where am I at with the Lord can I love an enemy, love somebody who's coming against me? Can I do good to someone who's clearly hateful? Can I bless those who, who curse and pray for those who spitefully use you? The only way that this is ever possible is to realize how gracious God has been to us when we were an enemy towards him. Prior to knowing Christ our Savior, we were in a hostile position. We were opposed to God. The Bible says we were at enmity with God. And God loved me while I was still a sinner. That's when Christ died for me. When I didn't want anything to do with him, he wanted everything to do with me. And when I understand how gracious God has been to me, then that provides the love to be able to love someone 
who's coming against me. We can't do it apart from knowing God's grace. We can't do it apart from relying upon the Lord. Do you have somebody that has hurt you, someone who's come against you, and God is calling you to live differently instead of being vengeful and angry and bitter to say, I'm going to love them. I'm going to look for opportunities to do good towards them. I'm going to pray for them. If we start to pray for them, God's going to work. He's going to work on our hearts. He's going to begin to change us from the inside out towards them. I'm sure that you've noticed we're living in a culture that's more hostile towards Christ and towards Christianity. And it can get really frustrating, can't it? We can get to a place where we're anger and we're bitter and we want to even start to fight in a sense. But God calls us to love those that are coming against us to pray for them, to bless them. Because this is the greatest testimony of God's grace. Remember when Jesus was dying upon the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He blessed those who cursed them. There's something that's far bigger than getting our own way, and that's the opportunity to be a testimony of Jesus Christ. If someone's hostile against you because you're a Christian... Remember that there's some conviction that's happening in their hearts and lives. Saul was hostile towards Christians because I believe he was being convicted. My pastor growing up, he put it this way. If you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that howls is the one that got hit, right? So someone that's really hostile towards the things of of Christ, there's some conviction there. The light is penetrating their darkness and they don't like it. And for us to say, okay, Lord, soften my heart. What if the body of Christ as a whole, what if the Christian community was known for for loving their enemies and doing good to those that that hate them and, and praying for those that spitefully use them? In this attitude of mercy, to him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you, And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Now, if you know these verses, you can't abuse this with other Christians, right? If you're like, I know as a Christian, if I ask, they're supposed to give. So, hey man, could you give me a hundred bucks? Matthew 29, or Luke 6, 29 through 30 says you have to. So cough it up, right? You manipulator, you can't do that, right? That's a a twisting of scripture. But this is a heart of mercy to say, man, if someone asks of me, I'm going to go the extra mile. If someone comes against me and strikes me on the cheek, I'm going I'm to turn the other cheek. And as difficult as this is, we see this lived out in Christ. As he was crucified, as he was on trial, as he was, he was brutalized, he responded in grace. He responded in love And that unconditional love is the greatest tool that God can use to reach hearts and lives. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. What's really important here is as you want them to do to you, not as they do, right? Don't don't treat people the way that they treat you, but, but treat them the way that you would like to be treated. Do you like being treated with respect? Do you like receiving mercy? 
Do you enjoy a compliment? Do you like getting yelled at? Do you like getting held a grudge against? So as you want people to do to you, you do likewise to them. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Unbelievers, people that don't know Christ their Savior, they love people that love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. So this is the way that the world works. Is if you're going to treat me good in return, then I'll treat you good. But if you're going to treat me bad, then I'm going to treat you bad. One of the greatest gifts that can come into our lives is gracious relationships. It'll bless families. It'll bless the work environment. It'll change dynamics where you live, the street that you live on, the apartment that you live in. To say, God has been gracious to me. And so I'm going to treat other people with grace, not just how they deserve to be treated. And it's wonderful to live in an atmosphere of grace, isn't it? It's wonderful to be in relationship with those that are, that are gracious, to extend the grace that God has given to us. Again, this challenge to love our enemies, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. As we love our enemies, as we do good to our enemies, if we even lend to our enemies, then we are walking in the footsteps of Christ. We're marked as children of the Most High. We're taking on that characteristic of God because God is kind. And he gives kindness to the unthankful and the evil. How kind is God to us when we're unthankful and yes, evil? We can't even begin to calculate it. I'm thankful that God's mercies are new every morning, right? His unfailing love, it, it never ceases. That this is who God is. And this is what makes God so mind-blowing and so amazing and why we love him and, and why we serve him is because he's so gracious. And I, I love grace and mercy in my life, but unfortunately, I long for judgment in other people's lives. Isn't that twisted? Like if I, I'm going to wear grace and mercy, then I need to extend grace and extend mercy. And again, this is the Holy Spirit helping us with this. The teaching is such a high standard that it breaks us to the point where we come to Christ for salvation and we also, Jesus, help me. Would you do a work in my heart to cause me to, to love my enemies? To love a culture that doesn't want to have anything to do with you? That has rejected your existence, rejected your teaching on sexuality, rejected your teaching on life, that we're made in the, the image of God. God, give me a heart for those that are the, in darkness, those that, that don't know you. Someone who has come against you personally, a close friend, a family member, and they, they've hurt you differently, deeply. And God's calling us to treat them differently, to start to do good towards them, to pray for them, to, to forgive them. 
And here's the conclusion. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. As we know our merciful Father to then extend that mercy. Part of mercy is judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. The way you treat others is the way that you're going to be treated. If we go about our lives pouring out judgment and condemnation, that's what we're going to receive. But if we pour out mercy and forgiveness, that's what we're going to receive. There's a lot of misunderstanding with this idea of judgment. Some people think to say that something is wrong, then that's judgment. Like, hey, don't judge me. Jesus said, judge not. But Jesus throughout his teaching wants us discerning from right and wrong. Statements like, hey, look out for a wolf in sheep's clothing. You've got to be able to decipher a false prophet. You'll know them by their fruits. That's, that's discernment. The Bible does teach that there's right and wrong. It does teach that, that there's sin. So what is judgment? Judgment is to condemn somebody. To give that final judgment. So yes, you're going to have to discern, but leave judgment unto the Lord. Leave condemnation unto the Lord. And he spoke a parable to them saying, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Have you ever been in this situation where you realize, I was blind and I was following someone who was blind and we ended up on the ditch together? We were double trouble, right? Here's the lesson of these verses is choose your teacher carefully. Ultimately, we want our teacher to be Jesus. He's the one we look to. He's the one we follow. He's the one we model our lives after because you're going to be like your teacher. It's getting a little crazy up here. <laughs> a little, little disco party starting on. So choose your teacher carefully. I thought that was just in my head, but then it was like, it was really happening. Verse 41, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye interesting here about Christ's teaching, and I think it really does tie into this whole issue of mercy, is it's a lot easier for us to see sin in somebody else's life than to see it in our own. In fact, we can see a speck in somebody else's life, and we go, oh, you're, you're off right there. Husbands and wives, you know, you can, you can see that sin in your spouse's life. You can see it in your kids' lives. You can see it in your small group's lives. But we don't see it in our own life as easily because sin is deceptive and it's hard for us to take an honest look at our own sin. And, and Jesus is not 
condemning, trying to get the, the speck out of someone else's eye. That's helpful. If you've ever gotten something in your eye and you tried to wash it out and you, you can't get it out and you've needed help or maybe even had to go to urgent care and they've flushed out your eye, it's, it's extremely helpful. Sometimes a brother or sister in Christ needs that. But why we're a hypocrite is if we're wanting to deal with the speck in their eye, we first got to get the plank out of our own eye. This is really a humorous picture if you, if you think about it. You got a big log coming out of your eye and you're trying to go help somebody with a speck and you're, yeah. excuse me, like, why isn't this going very well? You know, I'm, I'm really trying to help out. I love and care about you. And they're like, you idiot, get the log out of your eye. Like you keep, keep hitting me with this, with this log. And so first we've got to deal with the plank in our own eye before we can go to deal with the speck in our, our brother's or sister's life. Psalms 139 it's a great prayer. It's a scary prayer. But search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting of the abundance. Excuse me, I went a little bit too far. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I need you to search me. God, I need you to, to know me. I need you to reveal this plank in my eye that I'm not seeing. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from bramble bushes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Fruit reveals what's going on in the heart. Just like a, a fruit tree identifies what type of tree it is. It's an apple tree. It's a peach tree. It's a pear tree. And what we treasure in our heart is what we speak. So throughout any given day, I'm putting things in my heart that I value, that I really treasure, that I really, really hold on to. And if I'm wondering where my heart is, if I'm wondering if there's a plank in my eye that I'm missing, then I need to listen to my words. I need to listen to what I'm saying because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Sometimes we say things and we go, oh, I, I didn't really mean that. And that may be the case, but more often than not, there was something behind what we said. There's some truth to what we said. And that, that's how we were really feeling. There's this conviction that, that comes from the Lord. And is there hope for change? Yeah. Start treasuring Christ. Start treasuring his word. Start asking the Lord to do a work in our hearts. It's not just changing the words that we speak, some type of behavior modification, but it's God changing us from, from the inside out. Lord, my, my words are, are revealing selfishness. It's revealing that that's what I'm really treasuring. Lord, would you search me? Would you know me? Would, would you help me? And, and Jesus, help me to treasure you. Help me to treasure your word. Help me to put your word into my heart. Jesus closes out this teaching with an illustration with two building projects. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? 
Whomever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without foundation, against which... The stream beat vehemently and immediately fell, and the ruin of the house was great. Building your house upon the rock or building your house upon the sand? It's a lot easier to build on the sand because you don't have to dig down into the rock bed. At this time, with none of the modern tools, man, it's a lot of work to dig down into rock by hand to build a house. It's still a lot of work to dig down in rock to to build a house. The storm will reveal the foundation. We're going to go through storms in our lives, and as we go through storms in our lives, it's going to reveal what we've built our house on. Did we build our house upon Jesus? Did we build our house upon his teaching? Jesus makes this really practical. He's saying, Why do you call me Lord if you hear what I'm saying, but you don't do them? So you're wise if you hear what I say and you do them. You're building your house upon the rock. You're building your house upon the rock. And this is where this section of scripture brings us humble at the feet of Jesus. When we realize this is the way that God is calling me to live my life. He wants me to walk in these blessings of Christ. He wants me to walk in these beatitudes. So first, it, it humbles us for salvation, where Jesus says, be perfect as my Father is perfect. If you're going to try to earn salvation apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, the standard is perfection. It's not just, well, being better than the person sitting next to you or a family member, or, or, or a neighbor, being more moral than someone else. It's not comparing ourselves with other people. It's comparing ourselves to God. And when we compare ourselves to, to his holiness, it very quickly it causes us to see our need for salvation. And, and if you haven't trusted Christ, hear the gospel, hear the good news that Jesus died for sinners, that he rose again for sinners. As we're poor in spirit, as we repent from our sin and turn to Jesus, Jesus, save me. Be the Lord of my life. He's gracious. He's ready to forgive us of our sins totally and completely if we'll receive that free gift through faith. But if we reject Christ over the course of our lifetime, not once, not twice, but just continually rejecting Christ, then we're eternally separated from God. And someday we'll stand before the Father and the Father's I gave you my son. I gave you my son. Why didn't you trust him? Why didn't you receive him? So tonight, today's the day of salvation. Here in the early part of October, crying out to Jesus, Jesus save me. And then for us, I'm sure you like me, as I read through this, I find this to be convicting. I find this to be a whole different way of living than our culture, than the world around me. And God is calling us. This is towards disciples. This is what it looks like to be a disciple is to walk in these blessings. To be poor in spirit. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. To be merciful. 
if God is merciful, he's, he's calling us to be merciful. Is there, is there someone you need to forgive tonight? Is there someone who's coming against you that you need to, to pray for? Has your heart just gotten so hard towards a dark, sinful culture? Does, does God need to soften our hearts? Not to condone sin, but to have true and genuine love for sinners. To have love for those that are enemies to the cross. Say, Lord, would you be gracious to them? Would you help them to be able to find repentance? We've got the opportunity to live these things out. And may the Holy Spirit fill us to rely upon the Holy Spirit. Can't do this apart from the Holy Spirit. Jesus, fill me afresh. I'm willing to obey you. Convict me when I'm wrong. Lord, show me my sin. Show me where that, that plank is in my eye. And I want to confess that to you to, to receive your, your forgiveness. But remember, God's commandments are God's enablements. So if God is calling us to this, then he's going to enable us. Don't try to do it on your own strength. Choose to walk in obedience, relying upon the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, lead me in this life. And the Holy Spirit will begin to prompt us and convict us and, and guide us in this path of Christ, in this way of Christ, in these beatitudes. But we'll find that true happiness, true blessing comes in following in the footsteps of Christ and saying, okay, Lord, I'm gonna begin to, to walk in these things. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we acknowledge that we're broken before you that there's no way that we can live these things out apart from you. Would you search us? Would you know us? Would you reveal any wicked way inside of us and lead us in the way of, of everlasting? Is there someone that you need to forgive tonight? Someone who has hurt you, that's coming against you? Would you right now just choose to forgive them, pray for them, pray blessing upon them? Father, would you supernaturally give us a love for a culture that doesn't want anything to do with you, that's rejecting you? Or may we be able to show them the grace that we've received. May we be able to point them to the cross. Father, we're tired of trying to get filled up on the things of this world that leave us empty? Would you help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to really seek after you and seek after where there's real substance? We want to build our lives on you, Jesus. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.